Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part two of our interview with Kent Bloomer, sponsored by Texture Arcazine. To see more, please visit t3xture.com. You know, I, I studied physics at MIT. That's where I started my college education and stayed in physics for a year, a, a couple of years, and I wove it into my understanding of architecture. And then I got into uh, the uh, development of all of that into problems of perception and ornament. The uh, I, I've kept friends with some of my freshman colleagues in talking about this together over the last few years uh, to, uh, I, I discussed astrophysics a great deal with the uh, with a senior scientist at the uh, Harvard Smithsonian Astrophysics Lab and it was very interesting talking to him because the more that, that we tried to find common language I mean he was light years ahead of me by then and I had gone into a different direction the language that the, 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 the arena that we got together on totally was symmetry. Um, with symmetry, he was playing the same games I was, identical, um, as, as an ornamenter that he was as an astrophysicist, which, were to, which was to examine a finite set of, symmetry, of things called symmetry operations, which go take you right back to motions. And it, it was very interesting that that was our meeting ground uh, you know, 50 or 60 years later after being friends, um, in discussing the cosmos, we came back to symmetry. Well, it's fascinating that you mentioned symmetry because in the work that I do and uh, something that we're definitely going to be exploring in this school in Naples is the idea of symmetry, alternating symmetry, local symmetry, and symmetry breaking, that all of these different facets of symmetry play uh, a very, very crucial and formative role in morphogenesis, not only in the natural world, but in the creation of what we call living form, uh, which certainly includes what you are calling ornament. And I'm curious, what parts of symmetry were you interested in or focused on? I think what you just said, and then I'll, I'll try to answer that question, couldn't be more right, that symmetry as an instrument of, of analysis and, and reflection is pervades all of the scales you just mentioned. It would take a long time to sort of say why I said that and why you said it. I, I did get it in your interview in Naples, though, where um, they were talking about this, for example, vistas, being able to see the sea from the monastery and then right down to how they were putting stone out. It's all containing issues of symmetry. And how do I use symmetry? Well, let me give you a... Um, an example from ornament. If you go to the root of Western ornament, to the basic Greek concept of symmetry, you 
in, in its purest form, you get a direct repeat, A, 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 A. If you go, if, if, if you perform the same, if you ask the same question in China, in the history of Chinese ornament, you definitely go to an A, B, A, B right from the very beginning. The Chinese will take something that's right-handed and in the next step, they'll make it left-handed. And the next step, they'll make it right-handed. It would be more likely that in ancient Greek, they, they would have made a sequence of circularly right-handed symmetries. Uh, and if they were to go from an A, B, A, B, it wouldn't be in changing the handedness as it would be in changing the position, uh, which is different from handedness. Uh, I, I would almost need a blackboard to explain this, but let me just go to go back to what I was saying that that the Greek use of symmetry of ancient symmetry was was one of continuous repetition um, that led to notions like infinity, which Pythagoras thought was a, was a condition of chaos. It was out of control. It had to be limited. In the Chinese, they from the very beginning, from the oldest examples, and I've studied it carefully and still I do study the Chinese, in Shang Dynasty uh, bronzes, um, when I've studied them, you always get this right, left, right, left. So if suddenly, uh, if you're moving and something goes in a certain direction, it's immediately corrected with a counter direction. It doesn't, it's not allowed to just go to infinity. <laughs> that is a huge but compelling difference between two supercultures because it it points out that they're using the same they're they're both addressing symmetry so in that they're they're operating completely in common but they're doing it in very fundamentally different ways but symmetry survives it's the survivor I think this is a very, very important thing to point out because so often from a Western perspective dealing with the you know post école des beaux arts interpretation of the classical world which is that you will you will say symmetry and look at a greek temple and see axis and sub-axis and left and right and something like a human face everywhere and when you look at something from china uh, or japan then that will be called asymmetrical when in fact, it's dealing with the way that you're describing it. It is using symmetry and then employing what you might call symmetry breaking at decisive points, exactly as a tree does. Exactly, and it's deeply symmetric. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a project in China right now uh, and ornamenting a, a school, uh, a new sort of collegiate level in Shanghai, and I'm working on this distinction that we've talked about of, 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 of the yin-yang, the right-left, right-left, and the Greek continuum, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, and it, 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 it can come up in a conversation with just about anybody around the table, and it makes complete sense that that difference exists, and we can talk about it. And so can I do with that with, a, with an astrophysicist from Cambridge, Massachusetts. So symmetry is the most fundamental building block. That, as you said when you were talking about Naples, can take us into any number of arenas. 
And once we're, once we're in those many arenas, like Christopher Alexander gets himself into, then we can start putting things together. We can put Humpty Dumpty together in ways that are fascinating. Very much so. And I, I think part, uh, part of this ingress that you're highlighting is being able to see beyond the strict biaxial interpretation of symmetry. Exactly. That's only one of the four symmetries that are known and practiced yeah. in, in modern geometry. Uh, There's also a, a, very, a very, very fascinating, well, one of, you mentioned um, Chris's work, one, one of his most important studies was done at MIT sometime in the 60s, um, which was yeah. about local symmetry with uh, strips of black and white on paper. What he was doing is he was looking at intelligibility and finding out how you could arrange the left-right symmetry, and people would, of course, find that, because humans do. People are also trained to find that. But then people could also find coherence in a way they would find things coherent if they were set up with a high number of local symmetries that were not biaxial. Absolutely. So it was quote-unquote asymmetrical, but if the local symmetries in the black and white areas on the strip were high, that would be considered more coherent by a random person in a controlled experiment than low local symmetries in the quote-unquote asymmetrical. And I think that this that's one of the ways into understanding a quality which heretofore has been considered somewhat mystical. I still think it's very beautiful despite any demystification, uh, but I wonder if when, when you discuss things with the um, with, with people in China, if you could mention the, or if anyone has mentioned the concept of Li, which is an old Chinese character that originally meant plotting out a piece of land, but eventually came to mean in Neo-Confucian philosophy, the markings in jade or the fiber in muscle, and it came to call for a kind of order. I love that. You know, if you go to a, a dictionary, even the the uh, American, um, uh, you know, Third International by Webster, something like that, that the libraries used to have, they have less than now in the computer. But um, and you go to the definition of ornament, it, it, it appears as one of three concepts: ornament, order, and cosmos were put together as be, as belonging to the same stuff. <laughs> that's that's what they are all about. What I like your words uh, so much is that when we are talking about symmetry and symmetry operations, and these, uh, and 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 you're touching on something important when you point out that the symmetry asymmetry thing is probably a misunderstanding. It shouldn't be said that way. They're both forms of symmetry. It's better that we understand. That symmetry, uh, there was a beautiful paper actually came out in 1937 in, in the MIT Review called Wallpaper and Atoms, in which, by Berger and McCache, in, in which they said there were basically four symmetry operations. Instead of saying there are four types of symmetry, there are four symmetry operations, one of which is this mirror symmetry, which is the simple drawing the line with the right hand on one side and the left hand on the other. Uh, another uh, form of symmetry is rotation. 
something revolving around a point. It can be the same thing. A third type of symmetry is tr simple translation, which, which means repetition. And a fourth symmetry operation is something called glide reflection, where it goes right, left, right, left, but it moves along a line instead of standing still. Those are the four symmetry operations that allow us to launch a rocket and circle Jupiter and come back. And it's still being used. Those work. And there is, as far as I know, no other operation of symmetry other than the, uh, no other basic one other than the four I just mentioned. And by getting hung up on just reflection sym sy symmetry, which is the mirror reflection, um, we really don't understand symmetry very well. But if you go to the four and work with them, you can come up with combinations that look very much like ornament. And, well, and this is fascinating because in, in my head at least, uh, a mathematician might correct me on this, but uh, with those types of symmetry and telemetry that you've just described, uh, the major objectives of calculus can be understood as a combination of two types of symmetries that you have yeah. the you have the ad infinitum combined with a vector. Right, exactly. I mean calculus takes all of these sets of symmetries and then see where they operate, oh, how they work in in, in, dif in differential states. You yeah, know? you can you can layer them. Yeah. Right. That's exactly where it appears, which is by the way why calculus should be taught visually. <laughs> I, I've talked to students who have trouble with calculus until somebody comes on and draws a picture of it, and then they get it. It makes perfect sense because Einstein, who always so modestly said that he was a terrible mathematician, uh, Einstein yeah. would say that he would think through the problem as if he were touching it, like it was a physical thing. It is. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the best way to do it. And I, I actually believe that one of the roles of ornament and what we're missing today is good ornament that puts symmetry operations in front of us done by ourselves. You know, not, I mean, all those operations exist in the forest or in the, you know, outer space or inside our body. But the, the ornament, what great ornament does is it puts us, it, it builds it and puts us in front of us and incorporates it into our architecture as a theme, as a, presence that we experience. I, I walk around the Yale campus, which is heavily ornamented, and every time I do, I get excited by the symmetry that's going on inside the tremendous palette of ornament on campus. I go to another campus that's made up of double corridor, you know, um, minimalist buildings, and I don't get a, any of that. I don't feel I'm on a, in a place of learning. Yeah, well, it, well, it sounds like um, you're touching upon something which I think is very important, is that uh, good ornament and especially good architecture or good design in general, simultaneously sculpting away from latent forces and relations, as well as highlighting others which are there. And if you have yes. something pruned down way too much to a minimalist scale, then there's, there's going to be suppressed 
It is suppressed, and there's no doubt that it's suppressed, and it's all it's reductive. It's taking suppose you took Beethoven's uh, <laughs> fifth, and you took ninety percent of the notes out of it. Um, suppose you went into a forest and cut back ninety percent of the species. That's what minimalist architecture is if it's put into a city. And the talk about um, you know, it, its poetry is a very esoteric conversation. Um, but that's a long discussion. Um, that's a long discussion. It seems to me that that ornament, uh, and this is what we try to do in my practice, um, and is definitely identified by people. I love, you know, when you ornament a building, it's not like making a sculpture or a painting and putting it in a gallery, having an opening. People come to the gallery and look at it and they say, you sort of say hello, goodbye. Um, and then a critic may come in and write an article about it. With ornament, there's none of that. It's not covered by critics. It doesn't have openings or closings. You put it outside in the rain. And if you want to know how people feel about it, then hang out. You know, I, we just, I mean, hang in the vicinity and chat with people about it. Yeah, like, like Mayor Koch on the corner. He had ask him how you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I do that all the time. It's sort of like the childhood story of the um, prince or somebody who, who wants to know whether the subjects love or hate him. <laughs> so, so they dress up like a villager and they walk around and have conversations. That, that's what you sort of have to do with ornament. You have to sit on a bus station. And chat with people. I think that's very important. Um, yeah. And I, well, I can I can actually give you a little bit of feedback on that uh, because personally, uh, I grew up uh, in Wisconsin and traveled to Chicago quite a bit when I was younger. And the Harold Washington Library, which you did major contributions for, I believe was that 1994 when that was completed. Yeah, uh, 92. 92, okay. So I went there. When I first noticed that building, it was 94. So it was a, it was a pretty new building. And I remember, well, of course, driving into Chicago itself with the, that cityscape and that skyline is quite an experience. And then um, we were yeah, coming in. Is. There's a, a great way to do it where you're coming in on the Eisenhower Expressway and you go under the post office and I believe it's either the stock exchange or the mercantile exchange and it's it's whoosh you go from kind of it feels like one second you're in suburbia and the other second you're in this you're in the Wizard of Oz right <laughs> it, it really feels like that and then um, I looked up there's this you know there's this building and I, just, I looked up and I, I asked my dad I said what is that and he said I think it's the library and I said my god <laughs> and I'm looking and I'm looking it up and of course the, the main thing I'm seeing is the acrotaria that you've got and I, I would certainly um, well you know what we should do I'm gonna put uh, some pictures of this uh, on our website on lapsuslima.com if people want to take a look you can also google image Harold Washington Library and you'll see it uh, acroteria is a term for uh, the Greek ornament which you would find in the middle of a pediment the middle of a point at the front of a temple or at the corners 
and this to do a quick summary of what this is like this is a reimagining of that that's done uh, at a much larger scale that ends up being put on top of a, a very large building and uh, yeah it's it's certainly something that I think people who go into the library it, it, it really gets you to see the whole building uh, and I can certainly confirm that uh, people people who use the library people who live in Chicago are really struck by that and enjoy those they are they, they are uh, um, you know when when that project was finished many architects had little caustic comments about that project some loved it um, but I would say that the mainstream thought it was a little bit off off to one side of what should be happening in architecture um, and uh, yet when we finished it if I went into a restaurant in the loop and they knew that I was involved with that they give me a free meal Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was so enjoyed by the public. Um, and and the architect, uh, the primary architect, Tom Beebe, got the highest, um, I think it was the Fry F Award internationally in classic design. Yeah. Uh, people do like ornament. It's very difficult, as I was saying earlier, to, to get that sentiment understood and out and, and into the public. I find that because I do it, how many people will say, including students who don't do it, how much they like it. Sol Sullivan, of course, is, is, is a god in Chicago. Yes. But um, now, uh, fortunately, there, there is a, retur a return of interest in ornament. Um, it's something you're probably aware of. I'm sure you are. Um, and it used to be when when I started teaching ornament forty years ago, um, I only had five students that signed up for it, and four of them signed up so they could tell me how wrong it was to teach the course in the first place. But um, then it went through a, um, a change of sentiment over time. Now the students. I get more applicants for the seminar than, than I can possibly take by 300%. And if you talk about ornament in the public domain, there is definitely a shift of attitude. We've even attracted interest on the podcast with re-examining the old discussions about this. We launched it with our first two episodes being on Louis Sullivan and then immediately Adolf Loos. And so we were talking about the idea of function and ornament and about how, from Sullivan's point of view, which we agree with, that function and ornament are not disassociated. Not at all. Not at all. And, and what's interesting is that he was the one who coined the word form follows function. Correct. And he included, as you know, I'm sure you, you, you read his essay on the tall building, which is the Wainwright building. Top of the Wainwright is one of the most gloriously ornamented attics in the country, as uh, as 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 one of the forms that he was identifying as being functional. And it just it says there uh, that's when the word or 
ornament forever follows function was coined in architecture internationally. And in that he includes the attic level of the Wainwright, which is what is so heavily ornamented. Sullivan deserves the respect he's gotten and bestowed upon him by history as one of, one of the most brilliant designers we've, we've, we've ever had. Um, he, for example, just to give you another example of his understanding of ornament, when he did the Carson Peary Scott building, also in Chicago um, on State Street, unlike the Wainwright, he put the, most of the ornament on the ground level. And that's where it really belongs in many cases now. You can put it on top of a building. It has to be enormous, like the Chicago Library. But putting it down low uh, puts it into the realm that people really operate in. Pe people don't look at, up at buildings anymore unless there's something really strong going on. Exactly. Um, well, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that. I had, I had that in mind to ask earlier because there's – when I was in Chicago, I had I had discussions with people there, and some people were saying, "Well, the, the Acrotaria are, are so large on that building; it's really oversized," and they didn't like it for that reason. And then the other side of that argument was, "Well, this is about maybe five times as tall as a, a Greek temple, so of course it's only appropriate to make them that large." And then you know, years. Years after those discussions, I came across uh, the writings of Albrecht Dürer, where he's talking about uh, perspectival proportion, that if you're scaling something from a human viewpoint, you can have a conic section out from the eye in order to scale statues and letters. And I'm curious if that type of, um, that type of scaling, just like you mentioned now, or like Dürer was writing about, was, uh, was a factor of what you did with... Um, Harold Washington. Yeah, it, it was um, a factor, and it works. Um, if if those were small um, things, they probably wouldn't be seen very well. Um, so there there are a couple of solutions to the problem of making ornament visible. One is to make it large if it's up high, which happened on most great Art Deco buildings, like the. Uh, Guardian building in Detroit, et cetera, et cetera, or, or the spire on the Chrysler building, and certainly what happens in cathedrals on, the, on their towers and turrets, um, or bring it down to the ground. And I think bringing it to the ground makes a lot of sense. And, th and then you can re-quote it on top of the building. I mean, if you see it on the ground and sort of res residues of it are up high, by seeing it on the ground, it'll bring your eye up to the top of the building. I, I, I'll tell you, this is a slight change of subject, but it's the same topic or same building. There, there's a story about um, the um, American, uh, ALA, American Library Association, had, had an annual conference at the Harold P. Washington Library in Chicago about 20 years ago. And um, a story that came out of that was somebody saying that, well, some librarian saying that this family came and they had some kids, young, young, young 
boys, five, five years, six years old. And when they got to the corner of the street, they refused to cross the street because they looked up at the owls and Akutarian and, and they were afraid. Oh, no. And um, the mother said, don't worry about this. Make a run for it. Once you're across the street, they're going to protect you. <laughs> oh, isn't that fantastic? So it's just yeah. like a cathedral. It's the gargoyles. Yes, just like a cathedral. In a sense, yeah, cathedrals are very sublime and, and almost terrifying in the, in the correct sense of the word. But they end up sort of engulfing you and protecting you. But, yeah. That's, That's part of it. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to touch on regard, regarding history from Sullivan to Los, even though a lot of people, a lot of people like to start the podcast with episode number one, start with Sullivan. Our most popular episode is the part two on Adolf Los, where we really dig into ornament and crime. Our interpretation of this, it's been so often, there's been what we think is a facile reading of this, which dismisses his views through the lens of a kind of Corbusian purism, that you should banish ornament, that ornament is wrong. But we don't, we take a revisionist perspective on it, thinking that he was not saying that ornament should be abolished, that he believed that architecture was going through a stage uh, where ornament was being shed, that there was being a kind of a new, a new sense, which he thought was spatial, a new sense of spatial harmonics being developed. And if you look at his buildings, they're not plain at all. And even in the 19, that essay was 1910, I believe, or roundabouts, and then around 1922, he started saying that these, oh, these young architects don't understand me. I, I didn't want to have just white walls everywhere. What, what is your reaction to that, being part of uh, an institution where you're around students who are coming across this stuff perhaps for the first time and who have their own ideas and are excited? That Are, are they interpreting this differently? I don't know. That's a good question. Lois is a difficult topic. First of all, the essay, Ornament as a Crime, was not a serious essay. It was a satire. And uh, sh so it shouldn't have been taken seriously. It should be taken as a satire to the extent that satire is taken seriously, which is important. He was trying, for pr he was trying to provoke, which is the main intent. What was more appalling to me was the extent to which it was accepted as having some sort of moral truth. That, to me, is appalling. I, I gave a, a, a talk once to the FA, FAIA crowd in New Haven of, of senior architects, and I said, the mistake was not Lowe's. It was your mistake for buying into a satire. And a couple of them were very upset at my saying that, as though they were stupid. Uh, but you don't get something that is fundamentally stupid, which was what's that essay has inside of it, you know, saying that, um, well, I, I, I won't try to repeat the essay, um, but uh, basically criminalizing, if, if you wish, something that had been central to culture for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and, and treating it as a moral problem in the 20th century was pathetic. In my opinion, and so you're quite, there, 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 there are two is, issues here. One is what do people think about it now, 
I think that that I agree with you that Loos himself made corrections on on what he was talking about in his in his better writings that were not satire. Um, I think he had a lot to offer. Um, uh, what what he did about ornament was, I think, help its destruction though, because he he came up with a, a, also a materialist theory, which is which he did in his own design, which is that, that ornament could show up in wood grain and things like that, or or especially especially a marble face, for example. Yeah, and marbles. I think that was simply that he didn't know what the word meant, because that gets into decoration. So. So you think he's making the conflation that you were mentioning earlier? Yeah. So I, I would summarize I, what 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 I do with my own students who bring the Losian thing up, or even research people is more or less what we just talked about, which is let's get our terminology straight and then then revisit Los uh, and see if if what he's saying makes any sense. What what I'll also point out is that in 1908. When Loos wrote that essay, another book came out called Abstraction and Empathy in 1908 by Wilhelm Voringer, in which he declared ornament to be the highest of the art forms. And guess what? Voringer is, is, is now rising in the literature that people read uh, about the, his, the history of design and architecture. Abstraction and empathy has become a much more important reading than Loos. And what, again, is interesting to me is that both of them wrote in 1908, one declaring ornament to be the highest art form. He didn't use exactly those words, but he said it was the one that um, achieved the greatest equilibrium. What was it? Exactly the way he used the term equilibrium, equipoise, equipoise between issues. And that goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, it was Sullivan who used the word dynamic equilibrium. Uh, Voringer said equipoise was achieved in, in ornamented things in ways that no other art form could achieve. Both of them at the same time. Loos won the attention of the, of the community of architecture, of the academy, for 60, 70 years. And I think that that's over with. Um, I think that the, 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 the people who defend Loos now our scholars who've read all of his work and say that he said other things too. But those other things are not talked about in the public domain or in, in, in the halls of drafting rooms. Um, that takes a lot of hard reading. So I, I would not want to you know, go across the board negative about Loos, but just point out that Loos wrote a satire. And the problem was not his writing it. The problem was people buying into it. I actually believe... This is Kent Bloomer being Kent Bloomer right now. That if we were taught ornament, that we would think differently about all of these subjects. But by not being taught ornament, we have been deprived of a very, very important variable in how we see and experience not only figuration but space itself. You know, um, for 
in the 20th century, space was, was delivered as a puristic idea, emptiness, void. But that hardly touches the surface of what space is all about. Um, Bachelard, the poetics of space, does a much better job in talking about space than, than usually takes place in the academy. Uh, I, I would recommend anybody wanting to understand space phenomenon to read Bachelard, po Poetics of Space. Bachelard was a philosopher of science. Is this, a, uh, I, I may have read this, is, is this the one where he talks about gables and that a house is a place where one could dream? Yes. Oh, yes. That, no, that, that's, that's a very good one. When he talked about space, he would talk about if you open, if you look at the palm of your hand and you see the indentation in the middle of the palm, he would palm, he would call that a space. So he was exploring all scales and all types of space. But he was doing it with a brilliance that is staggering. Um, and it was interesting that that was done by, by a philosopher of science. In Germany at the time, or in France at the time, when if, if you were writing an essay on chemistry, you had to have a degree, and you were a philosopher, you had to have a degree in chemistry as well as philosophy. So he, he was a super scholar, and he took space on, in a relatively short book, with astonishing insight. Um, yeah. You know, the, the space is a, tr is a tricky term. They're, they're, um, I, I think when, when, when we think about space, we have to get out from under the notion that space is mere emptiness. Um, you, you can go into a building. There, there are buildings that are full chock-a-block with ornament, like some of the chapels in Mexico. And they are just as they are just as spatial, if not more so, just to use a, a the word poetically, than a white box. For goodness' sakes, um, it just happens to be they're full of stuff, and the other's empty of stuff. But both of them are equally spatial, and and spatial has took on taken on a false image of emptiness and whiteness. Uh, I I I I was. Um, in a review once, when one of the reviewers, I, I was talking about ornament, and one of the viewers, well, this is a slight movement from where we just were, said, uh, I, I, I said there was a difference between ornament and, dec and decoration. He said, what's the difference? He said, what's the difference? There's no difference. I said, all right, suppose we got the room we were sitting in, which is quite nice and rich and lots of people were in it, and we painted everything white. That would be an act of, dec of, of, of decoration. I mean, a decorator would paint everything white. That's a, a decorator. Some decorators would. I mean, they would call it decoration. So, where's the ornament? <laughs> and he couldn't answer the question because there wouldn't be any ornament if everything was white. But there would be decoration. But it, it also, um, I think the same problem exists in understanding space, that people think space is white, something like that, which is crazy. So, some of the most interesting spaces could be dark, wet, damp, black marble and moss. Well, I think a lot of this has to do, um, a good deal of my own research has ruminated on this, 
a lot of this preconceived notion of the space as blank or space as white, uh, I believe, is a legacy of uh, the Cartesian worldview, which uh, had been and has been helpful in isolating phenomena that if you want to study physics, you want to be able to isolate internal from external, subjective from objective, in order to really get at what's going on there. And that the, the and then the the spaces the spaces unanimated blankness where the individual is ensouled and even yeah. and Descartes went so far as to argue that colors didn't exist that it was yeah. that that even everything was you know conceived as white so then therefore the modernists would say that white is honest and that is a subjective interpretation of the Cartesian perspective and then. Um, what what Voringer, among others, um, is is talking about with this idea of empathy, which um, which I believe goes back to Leibniz's amendatory critique, when when Leibniz was examining and reacting to Descartes, um, yeah. and talking about a worldview where perspectives are all reflected within each other and interrelated. Uh, that this uh, that this Weltanschauung is very much at the root of a world in which you understand empathy. And I think when you look from that point of view, when you take that heuristic versus a Cartesian heuristic, then you are in a much better position to create. You know, that's 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 sort of what comes out of abstraction and empathy by Voringer. Whereas, whereas the term abstraction moves into the spatial too. So, so space becomes abstract and white. With abstraction and empathy and bringing them together like that, it sounds like you're saying that he wants to bring a sense of life to what was previously considered blank. Yeah, well, what, what he tries to do is, is use both of them um, to, uh, in the right way together. Uh, but the, re the reason I mentioned the warrior again is that his... He identifies, he doesn't quite do this, because that book, that was written in 1908, and the words keep shifting. Um, somehow in the present academy, um, abstraction takes on a whiteness. It, it surprises me that art galleries paint their walls white, um, all of them. Yet some of the most advanced color theorists point out the, fall, the, the fallacy in doing that that they should really be middle ground be between light and dark. What I believe it does, now this is me, I, in fact, I've just been working on this problem, um, uh, using to some extent the, the brilliant, um, some of the brilliant thinking that Armin Hoffman has done in Switzerland about how to understand color, is that color in a white field is going to behave very differently than color in a material field, a material field being one that, uh, for example, when he does color studies, has his students to them and does it himself, he would do it on chipboard or butcher paper or concrete or anything but a white surface. And, and um, if, if, if you put if you do your color studies on a white surface in a white gallery, you're basically isolating the thing you're doing from, from, from the actual world. You're, you're putting it into emptiness. 
Um, and so I would tend to use the word empty. People believe it is, yes. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, and this is a fascinating, this phenomenon, if, if people want to look up this phenomenon, I'm certain that you can find very uh, fun image charts online, which will show you how this works and show you optical illusions that highlight, uh, it's called edge interaction effect. If any listeners want to see how that phenomenon behaves, and it stems all the way back from uh, Goethe's original work on color. Yeah, Goethe's wonderful. He's mad as a hatter. I love him. I mean, he leads you right to William Turner and Ruskin and all the good guys. <laughs> but but you're you're right. Al Albers would would always exhibit his work on a white gallery setting. I, I have two Albers prints in my house, and they only work in white areas. Uh, and, and they seem to work best in that. But as a consequence, they become somewhat autonomous. Whereas the uh, system of using materiality for the ground instead of whiteness um, connects, would connect the interaction more to the field, the, the context. Um, it, it would make it much more, if, well, I mean, I, I think you, you get Surratt or Monet, you get some of the great impressionists who were using interaction. Their work seems better in 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 a in, in a gray background, in my opinion, um, where they get the color blooms. Owen Jones was, and, and they're they're Goethean. They they admit Do to you mean the impressionists to, to to Goethe. Oh wow! Um, and not to Newtonian or yes. It's, it's actually interesting. But what's, what's interesting is how um, how space is sensed as being white, as being neutral. That's the, the word you just used, as being white, being neutral, being, um, let's see, uh, somehow uh, <laughs> less impositional uh, the space doesn't impose uh, I mean all, all this whole category this whole stream of things abstraction whiteness neutrality minimal but somehow we're being liberated from what I believe that it is is that it's a very strong push away from the corporeal yes absolutely absolutely yeah it 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 it, dis, it disembodies us. Yeah. With my Spenglerian point of view, it is because there is a very strong civilizational trend at the tail end of a, a world system civilization, where the beliefs will uh, will tend to leave the world because the world has moved on to something else. And so the beliefs don't fit there anymore and they must go to a place which is spiritualized and decorporealized. And I think that the sense of space as animated, the sense of space as corporeal, which yeah, ornaments and this new yeah. understanding of ornaments is... Re-embodies, it re-embodies this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this is a nice sort of circle we've come to. That we're back to the to what does ornament do, and I think you're bringing up the body, 
and empathy and and our discussion on on abstraction in the absence in a sense of intricacy um, is bringing us to where we want to be uh, at least where I want to be being positive about ornament and suggesting that that's what it provides in in settings you know in urban settings in in but somehow you know it still seems that it's that in the day and age that we live in it's kind of fascinating to use both systems and put them and choreograph them in, in different locales, you know, so that one occurs and then you go to the other one, um, so that you can get this kind of rocking between the two, but you but to remove one altogether, to remove the ornament and replace it with this white abstraction, is it's just plain isn't fair. That's the wrong thing to do. It is not making a substantive contribution anymore. It's very interesting that you say that about shifting between these two senses or the two understandings. Um, uh, Spengler called that a pseudomorphosis, that when you're in, uh, it's like a crossfade. Uh, I, I would understand it as a crossfade in music where you have one note fading as another note rises. And so you have yeah. the... Um, the ultimate example architecturally of a pseudomorphosis is the pantheon, the rebuilt pantheon in Rome, uh, that uh, you can clearly see what would become morphologically the Hagia Sophia, but glommed onto the front of it is this really, really exaggerated thing that screams, yes, I am a Greek temple. Can yeah. you see how Greek I am? You mean the, the, the entrance piece? Yeah, I know. And, and some of the stuff at the lower level, opposite the entrance piece, do that too. And then it sort of evaporates into this. It, I, yeah, I, I do confess I rather like that fits? Kind of sort of dyad in, in the present world we live in. Um, I, I don't, I could tolerate over horror vacui perhaps more than other people. Because I would, I think, instinctively try to negotiate it the way I would like to, um, including going in and outside of a building. But um, in our urban setting, um, I, I must confess a, uh, a liking of, of, of the contrasting conditions going from the kind of pure, pure puristic abstract into something that is ornamented and embodied. I, oh, I've noticed. I, I've noticed some of that in the work that you've done. There was a parking structure that you did, which which has a sense of alternation. I see. So you're contextualizing in that sense. Uh, I, I just want to explain for the viewers. This is uh, this is a parking structure where there is a um, kind of a brick a brick color. Well, you know, that, that color that we used, we spent a lot of time studying New Haven, which has orange brick as compared to, let's say, Alexandria, Virginia, which has red brick, because the quarries and the clay in Connecticut produce orange, and the ones in Alexandria produced red. And I don't know why most of the brick in Pittsburgh is yellow. It must be for the same reason of the old building. But by... Um, by getting that color, we, we were able to spin the building back into the atmosphere of, of, of downtown New Haven. I mean, that, that, that project was given, was 
we were asked to reconnect a situation to the city that they were afraid afraid they were going to lose. Well, I think well, I think what you are highlighting in terms of ornament, and not only that ornament should be studied, but hopefully that ornament really, I believe, needs to be reintroduced into our daily lives. Because when people grow up being starved of ornament, they don't understand the value. Not only are their brains not wired and triggered in this way that you described when you're walking around the Yale campus, but then they, they don't feel the difference. And it's seen only as kind of a picture book visit. You're right. That's scary. That's, that's a little scary. That, therefore, we have to get it in their hands. We have to have them experience it. And fortunately, our school, with all of its robots, also sends the students to Rome every year uh, and has them walk the whole whole city under direct, brilliant leadership. Um, so it tries to <laughs> it tries to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's it's. And I'm trying to teach my grandchildren my granddaughter how to draw she can draw like a bandit but you know it immediately everything goes back to the digital strength well thank we'll you see thank we'll you. see this is another world you're young yeah uh well, yeah we're seeing we're seeing how things are developing i mean so your problem yes i'm certainly uh, well, this well, this is another reason to uh, to to immerse yourself in nature, as always, because you can see how how that natural exfoliation comes out and how it ornaments itself. in in terms yep. of educating ourselves, educating the public, and educating others, uh, the Building Beauty Project in Naples that I'll be teaching at come fall uh, is cert is certainly going to be on the side of um getting this right. involved in the world and trying to bootstrap this uh, reawakening and reconnection of sorts well that's good i'm glad you're doing that and i'm glad you're you're talking about it um that's very helpful we do need the likes of you to talk about what you're talking about it's not going to come from a generation that hasn't been educated in these issues, unless somebody stands up and does it. <clears throat> I think there are lots of years. I found that the students, um, I think I told you earlier in our discussion that, that the sentiment in the students is changing very, very nicely. They want to build. Our school still builds buildings. We still require all that. And the ones that do it are, are really happy about it. It also, I think the more the student um, or the individual, the house owner or whatever, is responsible for it, the more that they're, they're willing, for example, architecture are willing to operate in small, less corporate practices, you know, small offices. Our students go down to Brooklyn a lot and form little teams, um, live in old factory lofts, and uh, uh, are quite a bunch of characters, um, sort of like the old Montmartre. <laughs> uh, and they love that. They don't want the corporate, somewhat corporate, if their family owns the corporation. 
That sounds very positive, like uh, a lot of direct building and uh, small team work, which involves direct client relationships. I'm happy to see it. Well, thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You certainly know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, that means very much. Thank you. I don't have to. Uh, I've learned quite a I've learned some very interesting things from you. I thank you for that. Have a wonderful day.